This morning we're going to continue our study of the important practices of the Christian life. So far the Lord has let us see how we should resist or fight sin, how we can be still, how we can together, uh, well, last week he told us how we can practice forgiveness and reconciliation. And today he continues that with telling us how we should hear the word. And these are the core practices of our life. Next week we'll get the last one that we would together worship. And together then we can know the Lord, love the Lord, and he will love us. This morning we'll be taking a look at Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 that's printed out for you in your service folder. Or if you'd like to follow along either in your own Bible or in the Bible in the pew there, uh, it is on page 983 if you've got one of these white Bibles there. So let's take a look at that and let's begin this morning with a word. Lord God, thank you for gathering us this morning and letting us once again hear your word. We pray that as we hear it, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but true true hearers of the word, namely doers and believers of that word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're never going to change the way you need to. That's what somebody told me just this week. They didn't mean it cruelly. They weren't cruel, but but they were getting at the heart of my life. What they're telling me is they've put the truth before me many times. They've made the facts and the evidence all clear, and yet I have failed to conform my life to that truth. Ever had that experience? Had a cut for just a little bit. Um, when I when I learned about Bloom's taxonomy one time, that really helped me understand a little piece of, of human nature and psychology. Uh, some of you might be quite familiar with Bloom's taxonomy. Bloom, Benjamin Bloom, was a educational psychologist in the 1900s, and uh, they've been published now many different variations of his taxonomy. But essentially, what what Benjamin Bloom set out to do is to describe the different levels or the different uh, capacities that we have for knowledge. And you can see off of this way of describing or showing Benjamin's taxonomy, he describes us as, when it comes to knowledge of a truth or application then of that truth, as having five levels. He says, first, we are aware of the truth or the idea. Then we begin to ponder it. Finally, we start to value it. And then there's what we call the action or the behavioral gap. And you have to jump across that gap to get the truth to actually matter to your life. You have to then reprioritize your life around that truth. And finally, you become an advocate of the truth. You own it, which means you take responsibility for upholding it and promulgating it or, or propagating it, passing it on to, to the next generation. And you know that lots of people uh, appropriate different truths in their lives to different measures. You and I do this as well. But it was really pondering Benjamin Bloom's taxonomy here that when, when people say to me, you're never going to change the way you need it, I think, well, what truth is it that I need to take from just pondering or maybe valuing to actually owning? And today God invites us to be true hearers of his 
Peter, in Second Peter here in this section, he, he's calling us to be true hearers, people who hear that word and then apply it so much that we cross that behavioral gap and we own it and we make it real in our lives. Let's do this together. Uh, the experience that Peter is writing about as he tries to help us to be true hearers of the word, it was one of the most formative of his life. It was the time where Jesus took him and the other two disciples that he was so very close with, he took them with him up on the mountaintop, and there he showed them his full glory. He knew that he was going into a very traumatic experience, which would be incredibly challenging for his disciples, and, and so he wanted to show them the fullness of his glory. He did just that. We call that the Mount of, of Transfiguration. That's something that we took a look at just a couple weeks ago. While he was up on that mountain, two people appeared with him. Moses. Moses is the embodiment of the law. He's the picture of the law. And then Elijah. Elijah is the embodiment or the picture of the prophets. So we've got there the, the law and the prophets, which Peter would have known as the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. And then as Peter is sitting up on this mountain with these two guys, he hears a voice saying to him, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And Peter's big takeaway from that experience, he tells it to us in verse 19 of our text. You probably saw it there. He said, We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Now at that point, of course, the only prophetic message was the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the Old Testament as we call it. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't reliable up to that point, but Peter had now had an experience which planted the reliability of that text more firmly and deeply into his life. He said he really, really started to grasp it, right? It was making more sense to him. And he says then, too, that he and the other people who have become, uh, well, he uses the word eyewitnesses of this fact. See, what he's trying to tell us is that he and the others, they have such an amount of proof now for you and for me that we ought to radically change our lives and reorient them around this Jesus of Nazareth. He knows that right, Jesus of Nazareth, he has made such incredible claims on our lives that for us to believe what he says and to change our lives appropriately is going to require a huge amount of evidence. And so he says, and you saw it, we did not follow cleverly devised stories, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he says, right? Verse 16 there. And so he's, he's telling us that, yeah, I know you and people around you are going to be super skeptical of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, because he's making these magnificent claims about our life. But here's why you should believe him, because we are eyewitnesses. And we're eyewitnesses to such an extent that we're going to be willing to die for this truth, and, and many of them did. Why are they willing to die for it? Because it's reality. It, it, it's, it's history, I guess we could say, but it's, it's reality. It's a sequence of events that describes what actually happened. And if you would have been there, you would have seen all of that sequence of events yourself, this one and then that one. It's not the whole story, is it? but it's at least a big part of the story. So Peter's bottom line, what he wants us to take away from all of that, 
is that the Bible is not our word, but it's God's word. And so it should carry more weight in your life and mine. That's what he's trying to get at. If it's prophetic, it's not from us, it's divinely given. And it would carry more weight in your life. What we can say then is, to the extent that you believe that the Bible is the word of God, and not human words, it's going to influence your life accordingly. And Peter wants to tell us, or we could say that the way that this works out and into our lives, the way that the Bible is God's word works out into our lives, falls into what we usually call two categories. Okay, and, and so let's go through those two categories. The first one, if the Bible is God's word, then what we usually say about it is that it is inerrant. Now, you can see the word error in the the word inerrant. And so what we're saying when the Bible is inerrant, we mean that it has no errors. It has no mistakes. It contains no factual inaccuracies. And I'm sure, as an example to illustrate this, if I handed any one of you a biology textbook from, let's say, the 1850s, you'd read through that, and you'd find a lot of good information in there. You might say, oh, there's there's a fair bit that we agree with. Now, don't ask the doctors, because they probably disagree with everything, right? but at least the, the factual information for, for most of it, the average person would agree with a decent chunk of it. Uh, on the flip side, though, the average person would also read through a lot of it and say, there's a lot of this that's just not correct. This is not at all how science and biology actually work. And the same, in the same regards, right? If the Bible is human words, then that means that you and I, we have to sift through it as we read it. We have to figure out which of the facts, which of the events are historical, are real, are true. But on the other side, if it's not, um, if it's if it's not human words, if it's God's word, that means we assume from the very start that there are no mistakes, there are no inaccuracies in it, and it's just up to us to figure out how all of this stuff works together. A common example is how many angels or men showed up at the resurrection of Jesus. If you read different accounts, there are different numbers of people. One account has one person, and, and one account has two angels in it. Well, does that mean that it's, it's wrong, that it's got an error, that it's inaccurate? No, it just means it's going to take some work on our part to figure out how the two stories fit together. So that's the first category. If the Bible is God's word, not human's word, the first thing it tells us is, hey, you're probably going to have to spend some time on the fact-checking. But the second thing that it tells us, if the Bible is God's word, is that it's infallible. See, you and I, we probably all have a, a lot of people in our lives who are are really smart, and they know a lot of stuff. Everybody should have at least one person in your life like that. Um, and, and yet, I don't know, I, I have a few people in my life like that, but I hate talking to them. You know why? Because they're always telling me I'm wrong, right? They're not very... They're not very nice people sometimes to talk to. What the other thing that the Bible tells us is that it is infallible, which means that it is it is true, it is real, it's trustworthy. So not only are the facts of it correct, but that the ideas that it's giving to us are correct. And so what that is telling you is is if you are reading through the Bible and you find that it's pushing against you. You say, oh, this is insensitive, or this is not a good idea. 
or I really don't like this part. And if at that point you can have enough humility to say, you know, I'm not always right about everything in life. I do things wrong. I, I get some stuff wrong sometimes. If you can have enough humility right at that point, that as the Bible is, is pushing on you, well then, all the Bible is doing is showing you to be true what you already know. Namely that sometimes you're wrong about stuff. And just because it pushes on you and it kind of hurts you, doesn't mean that it's bad. And furthermore, to take this another step further, right? If the Bible is infallible, what else it's saying about it is that there is a real personal God working in it, working through it. Right? When you get pushed at and prodded and poked at it in your life, all that is doing is showing you that there is actual God, a person behind it, who is trying to show you something about your life. Finally, the last thing to, to take away about it being true and real is that popular culture is fun. I mean, I would not want to give up the, the 21st century and X-Men and the Avengers and the Star Wars movies and all that great stuff for anybody's business. Love it all. Uh, and, and yet, anybody who is a student of history can tell you that if you hitch your wagon to whatever the popular culture is, you're always going to be missing stuff, aren't you? You are going to be wrong some of the time and, and right some of the time. And, and just take a look at the big ideas of history, and you can see that that's true. What did people think a hundred years ago? What were the most popular ideas? People were saying things like, oh, you know, communism is the wave of the future, and capitalism is on the way up. People were saying things like, eugenics is the way to manage and control the population in the world. Nobody says those things. Anymore. At least not if they've really looked at even the last hundred years of history. If you if you hitch your wagon to popular culture, well, you're, you're going to always be wrong. And that's why the Bible, the other thing that it's, it's making a, a point for us or something to take away is that Bible believers are always going to be a little bit ahead, but also behind culture. You're, you're always going to be both at the same time. The ideas of, of the Bible are going to be pushing on you, pulling you back. So there's, there's all of the things that Peter is trying to tell us about the message, about how it's reliable. Now the question then is, do you do it? I gave you a, a little chart there in, uh, in the service folder. You don't even have to look at it. What it shows is a, a Pew Research study that was done within the last few years. It divided America up into seven major categories or groups based on the kinds of people and their religious life. And, and it's fascinating. It tells us about, you know, the every Sunday individuals. It tells us about the, the, the God and country kind of believers, all the way up to the people who are, are not religious at all. But one of the things that it, it shows us is that people are very inconsistent. Almost nobody actually practices what they preach. Almost nobody actually lives the way they say they believe. Even for people who come to church every week, only half of the people in those who come to church every week actually believe that the God, Bible is God's word and it's correct. It's true. That, that's only half of the people in America. Why? What is the, the deal with all of the inconsistency? Well, Peter's response to that is, is pretty simple. And he gets at it this way. 
And I'm going to get at it this way. What's the main message of the Bible? One of the things that I always try to do whenever I start a, a catechism class is ask people, what's the main message of the Bible? What, what, what's the big idea that you're supposed to take away from this? And you know, whenever I ask kids that question, they almost always get it wrong. I've rarely seen a kid get it right. And I don't think that means that they're, they're badly educated or their parents are, are bad parents. What it tells me is that children's intuition is, is always wrong. What's the most common answer you think I get when I ask them what's the main message of the Bible? They always tell me something like, well, God wants me to live a good life. Or this is how God wants me to live. Or these are God's rules for my life. Fine as far as it goes, but what are they saying? They're saying the Bible is a, a book of conduct. It's a, a book of rules and conduct that tells me, here, if you do these things, then God will reward you and give you a good life and maybe give you heaven. But is that the main message of the Bible? No, and no matter how you slice it, that's not the main message of the Bible. And and what Peter wants to do that is say, don't forget. Don't forget the main message. Because if your life is going to actually look like what it needs to look like, you need to remember what the main message of the Bible is. Peter says it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That's the main message of the Bible. It's the creation of the world and it's fall into sin. It's the redemption of Jesus and the restoration of all things at the end of all time. It's sin and grace and faith and works. This is the main message of the Bible. And maybe you, maybe you know then that uh, there's a poem written by a man named Francis Thompson in which he, he calls God kind of the hound of heaven because God is always chasing after you and me to make sure that we don't forget this message. Or C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. He said that when he was searching and looking for God in his life, it was kind of like the mouse searching for the cat. Right? He was a mouse, and, and God was actually a cat at the same time hunting for him. And there's a man named Peter Kreef who, who said when he was studying the Bible, it was, it was like looking through a keyhole and being surprised to find that there was already a face in the keyhole looking back at you. That's what reading the Bible should be like. Because every page you turn, you should see that the main message is that God wants to save you. And so here's what Peter does to make sure that you and I take it to heart. I'd like you to take a look. See what he says in verse 12. What's the, what's the phrase he uses in verse 12 to make sure that you and I don't forget the main message of the Bible? You write it down there for us in the, in the service folder? Got it? You write that fast? But Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, doesn't he? He has no problem reminding you of them, even though supposedly you already know them. And he goes on and in verse 13, he says, I think it's right to refresh your memory. He has again, even though you know it, you should have it already firmly ingrained in you. The only way to make this part of your life is to refresh your memory. And last, he says, you will do well to pay attention. The God is this hound of heaven. He is the man on a search for you. And he will not let you forget what he wants for you. So that your life 
changes according to it. A great example I, I heard of it on this last week was a man named Ibrahim. Ibrahim is an Islamic imam, and he signed up to participate in a pen pal program with some Americans. He signed up so that he could hopefully convert uh, an American to Islam. Lo and behold, he got paired with a man named Danny who had the same goal. He signed up for the, the pen pal program to convert a, a Muslim, God willing, to, to Christianity. And so they ended up writing back and forth for the better part of two years. This was no trick or game or anything like that uh, involved. It was a pretty substantive conversation. And then after about two years, Danny said, hey, I'd like to come and visit you. Can I come and see you? And so he went to visit Abraham for about a month. They stayed up late at night discussing doctrine. After the month-long visit, uh, Ibrahim said, you know, you've done nothing for me uh, but over this time, but uh, demonstrate to me or make me firmer in my convictions that Muslim doctrine and life is true, so thank you for that. And Danny, before he left, he said, okay, so let me ask you to do one thing for me, please. Would you read the Gospel of John? Would you just read the Gospel of John? And Abraham said, well, sure, I'll do that. I'll do that for you because of because of your friendship. And so he read it, and he said this. He said, The Gospel uh, of John, the words pierced his heart in a way nothing ever had. Not the Quran, not Danny's arguments. Ibrahim read and reread John, and within a short time, he, he embraced Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. And that cost him, he brought an incredible cost to his life. Uh, his, his mother ended up taking off her shoe, which was a way in their culture of saying, you're out of this house, you're not allowed to walk in it anymore. Uh, they found his diary, they, they beat him, he had broken bones, and he was just left on the side of the road. His sister abandoned him. It was a huge cost. But the Bible, the Word of God, had changed his life, and it was a price that, that it was okay to pay. I want to ask you this week, what are you going to do to remember what God has, has said to you. I asked the kids to hit their heads in the Bible. I don't think you need to do that. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Do this one thing for me, please. Think of some area in your life where there's a truth that God wants you to know that you're working to apply. My example, I'm trying to learn how to live and lead out of my marriage, out of the union that God has given me between me and my wife. And so I would... I would put on, probably on the moving from pondering to valuing my marriage and the union of man and wife. I would put right on that line. Trying to figure out what that means. And maybe you would put the same thing, something like that, or maybe something different. But pick an idea that God is trying to get you to live in your life and find the spot where it fits on that chart. Pick one of those columns. And then put this in your Bible this week. Where you have your devotions and you have your prayers. And see what the Lord is, is telling to you. He's God is living and active in that word, pushing and prodding and showing you what he wants you to see. He's the hound of heaven. And the Bible is the one thing that will truly change you. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your word. So that we always remember what you have said to us. We do not forget it, we can, we can take it. We praise you that you are, are working, living, and active through it. And we, we apologize not only for our shortness of memory or our attention, but also our inability to, to apply what you've said. 
We ask that you would help us take the truths that you have given to us, whether that's the amazing truth that Jesus Christ has died and risen for us, and so you accept us, or that in marriage you have made us one man and one woman, or that you have given us blessings so that we can use those gifts and possessions to be a blessing for others. Whatever that truth is, we ask that you would help us grow in it until we can own it as your people. We pray for this mercy, this compassion on your part, for Jesus Christ our Lord.